And please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Judges. And chapter 21, the last chapter. But you remember the context of this particular chapter. The people of Israel have responded appropriately against the awful wickedness of the people of Gibeah. Remember how the Gibeahites had um, terribly abused the concubine of um, the Levite from the hill country of Ephraim. And you can find that in chapter 19 of Judges, if you didn't, weren't here for that sermon. And it's one of the saddest stories in all the Bible. And it echoes the Old Testament chapter in Genesis in which God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The, there are so many parallels between what the Sodomites did back then and what the Gibeites did here. Except the Gibeites were part of God's people under his blessing, supposedly living for his glory, whereas the Sodomites were part of the Canaanite culture that was cursed of God and destined to be destroyed. And so in chapter 20 last week, the people of Israel rise up in horror, in unity, and they come to deal with Gibeah, and the whole tribe of Benjamin, you remember, stand up to stand with Gibeah. Apparently the Gibeahites were very good fighters. They had 700 men who were excellent kind of special forces soldiers with slings. And the Benjaminites perhaps didn't want to lose them from their tribe. And they stood up against Israel. And Israel paid a dear cost in dealing with that sin. The first two attempts the nation of Israel made at dealing with the Gibeahites, they lost 40,000 men. And it was only the third time that they went up that God gave them victory. Discipline in the church. When the church deals with sin, it's always a costly matter. And it was in this case. And at the end of the day, the 27 odd thousand people from the land of Benjamin were wiped out. Only 600 men were left. And in verse 21, chapter 21, we see how they fare. This is the word of God. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from, this, from Israel this day. What shall we do for the wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. 
when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the inhabitants sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword. Also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that is lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought him to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Ramon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the woman whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead. But they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the house of the Lord, or sorry, of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and the south of Lebunah. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards, and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then Come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Well, What on earth are we going to do with this portion of Scripture? A question I have asked myself on not a few occasions during this week. I'm tempted to say what the Bible records, it does not recommend, and end the sermon. But you expect better of me than that, and so does the Lord. But I think it's key, first of all, to remember the big picture of the book of Judges, we come to the end of the book of Judges, so we should look back at the whole thing. And the book, you remember, falls into three unequal thirds, parts. The first section occurs from chapter 1 through to chapter 3, verse 6. And that documents the failure of the second generation after uh, Joshua to take the land. Joshua, after Moses, entered the promised land. 
And the second generation was called by God to make good that beachhead and to press on, as it were, and to fulfill God's call to wipe out the Canaanites. And they failed in two different ways. First of all, they failed to wipe out the Canaanites. They didn't do all that God said. The Canaanites were so wicked, so evil, God determined that a herniation from the final day of judgment would come back, as it were, and land on these people and wipe them off the face of the earth. Everybody, men, women, boys and girls, even their animals, to be wiped out because they were so ungodly. But Israel had a better idea. Let's kill most of them and we'll use the rest of them for hard servants. And as that compromise took hold, if you read those early chapters, you find initially they spare some of the inhabitants who live among Israel. Then those inhabitants multiply and Israel ends up living among them as minorities in their land. So that even here in the last chapter, we're told that Shiloh, an Israelite city, is in the land of Canaan, not the land of Israel. Interesting. More about that later. So they failed to obey God fully, and they also failed to pass on their faith to the next generation. The third generation rose up and did not know the Lord. And that's a pattern. If you don't put God first in your life, you know, all men live out their true theology, and their children tend to follow them. So it's no surprise to find one generation putting God at the bottom of their pecking list. Or number two in their pecking list. And the next generation wiping them off their to-do list altogether. That's the first section. The second section is the chunk of Judges. From chapter 3 verse 7 through to the end of chapter 16. And this is the, the meat of the book where we're introduced to all of the different Judges. And there's kind of a downward spiral of repetition. You go from rebellion to God's retribution to redemption. Israel rebel, they worship the Baals. God sends in his enemies they didn't kill to subdue them. They're subdued for a period of time. And then eventually they cry out, not in repentance but in pain. And God rescues them through the hand of a judge. But as you move through the section, there's a gradual downward spiral. The judges get worse and worse and worse until Samson. And the length of time they spend in bondage and the length of time they spend in deliverance changes. So by the end of the, that section, um, they're in bondage much more than they're free. And in this final section, from Judges 17 through 21, really takes a zip, looks back again at the whole um, nation. And there's this repetitive refrain, you remember, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that principle of just not listening to God but having better ideas all by yourself will come up and bite you. And we see in these chapters in just different stories that the, that the writer pulls up out of the daily headlines news, as it were, just how that principle of doing what is right in your own eyes led to spiritual chaos 
in the idolatry of chapter 17 and 18. It led to the moral chaos of Gibeah's unspeakable debauchery in chapter 19. And it leads here in this chapter to the social chaos after the church discipline of chapter 20. And the key to understanding this chapter, I think, is found in the question in verse 3. O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. And the one thing you see if you read through the rest of the chapter is that God doesn't answer that question. There's silence. There's an absence of divine revelation given. I'm not sure that I know why. I have a few suspicions, but God doesn't speak. He just leaves them to their own devices, to the darkness of their own hearts. Without the word of God, they become a little bit like, as they try to figure out what to do, how should they respond to this tribe that's almost exterminated? As they try to figure out what they should do, they end up becoming, without the word of God, they become like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't really there. And it's a disaster. Without the word of God, they're lost, as Calvin would say, in an inexorable labyrinth. Why has this happened? Verse 3. And there's no answer. And maybe the reason there is no answer is to draw your attention to that throwaway comment at the end of the book. The very last word. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Where did this social chaos come from? It came purely and simply because there was no king, no spiritual leadership that echoed the Lord Christ as the King of Kings. And because there was no king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And here is the result. Spiritual, moral, and social chaos. So with that kind of hermeneutical key, let's see if we can make some sense of this passage um, briefly, and then we'll make some application as God helps us or not. What happens when the word of God is missing? And when even the people of God try to make sense of how to respond? Three things happen here. First of all, there is ill-conceived piety. Ill-conceived piety. And you see that there in the opening verses. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give, us, give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And that's serious. Vows are serious things. The Bible is very clear. God is in heaven. You're on earth. Therefore, when you come before him, let your words be few, lest he bring you into judgment. Ecclesiastes 5. And the next bit talks about vows. Don't be rash to make a vow in the presence of God, because it's better not to vow than to vow and not fulfill. Because vows bind you. 
And so Israel make this vow, which is kind of important because they've painted themselves into a corner. They've wiped out everyone from Benjamin, all the women and children, and most of the men. There are 600 men left, and where are they going to get their wives from? And in an act of ill-conceived piety, Israel, in the midst of this battle, swore no one will ever give these men one of their daughters to marry. Which means there's going to be no children in Benjamin, which means they're one generation away from extinction. And the lament of that vow repeats again and again in the passage. It's there in verse 1. You also see um, it there in verse 7. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And you see it also there um, Verse 16, then the elder said, of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? Verse 18, yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So it's disaster. This ill conceived piety. That's the first thing that happens. You know, what is it that guides our religion? It's the word of God. We don't just do what seems right in our own eyes. When we do that, bad things happen. In fact, there's no limit to how many bad things can happen and how far down those bad things can extend. Look at Gibeah. Unspeakable wickedness. And one of the great problems that human beings have in their worship is that we measure what we do in church not by the word of God but by the yardstick of our own carnal stupidity. And it's disastrous. To these people here in Judges, it seems so right, it seems so pious, so zealous, we're earnest. But it was a disaster, ill-conceived piety. And it led to a whole catalogue of other disasters. The next thing we see is ill-conceived brutality. All because of their ill-conceived piety. This darkness leads to more darkness. At Jabesh Gilead. They didn't just make one vow. They actually made two rash vows. The second rash vow was, we're going to have a convocation. Everyone in Israel is going to come. And they thought everybody would come. And they said, anyone doesn't come will surely die. But the people of Jabesh Gilead didn't get the memo. And none of them came. I don't know why none of them came. But none of them came. So what to do? Ill-conceived brutality. They muster a small army and they send them to Jabesh Gilead. 12,000 of their bravest men. And commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword also the woman and the little ones. And once again, they prove themselves to be more faithful in destroying their own people than they were ever at destroying God's enemies. It's, it's crazy. God wanted them to destroy the Canaanites. They didn't do it. God never wanted them to go and wipe out the people of Jabesh Gilead, but they go and do that. So, faith, so faithless when God commanded them. So faithful when they ran after their own Um, imaginations. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, you draw near to God with your lips, but your heart is far away from him. In vain do you worship him, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
And the Pharisees were so faithful in their little jots and tittles of their uh, man-made laws, but they ran roughshod over the uh, fifth commandment, as Jesus said. So they go and they wipe out this town, and they only get 400 wives. Their best efforts aren't enough. And then that note about Shiloh, they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Why did they say land of Canaan, not the land of Israel? I wonder, was it a subtle dig? That in acting like this, Israel was behaving more like the Canaanites than they were like the covenant community. Ill-conceived piety, ill-conceived brutality, and if you forgive the kind of alliteration or the rhyme. Thirdly, ill-conceived hilarity. Ill-conceived hilarity. As in what they do next is almost hilarious. Were it not for the depravity of it? Still got to find 200 more girls. What do we do? Well, we can't give any of our daughters to them. And we can't ask anybody else in the land to give any of their daughters to them. Mm. What do we do? So then they think, okay, I've got a good idea. There's this party unto the Lord up in Shiloh, really far up north, way boondocks, way north, 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 almost in Canada. And they have this kind of strange tradition. They have this kind of worship service, and the, the virgin daughters of the city dance outside of the city into the fields. Where their fathers were, will always happen. I have no idea. But they would go out into the fields and dance. And Israel thought, that's what we'll do. We will lie and wait. And when the girls come out, we'll grab them and run off. And when their dads come down with the shotguns, we'll say this. Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. It's funny how man-made religion finds these ridiculous ways of justifying itself. For just a silly but a much sadder illustration of that, if you turn forward quickly um, in John's Gospel, chapter 18, Let's see if I can find it here. Yes. John 18, 28. Okay, so the Jews have got Jesus, and they lead Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So what's going on here? Well, the Jews wanted Jesus dead. And to have him dead, they had to get the governors say so. Pardon me, governors a Gentile. And if you get Gentile dust on your feet of your shoes by going into a Gentile house on the day of Passover, you can't eat Passover for a whole year. So they stand outside. Run that past me one time again. You don't mind having the blood of God's own Son on your hands, but you don't want to get Gentile dust in your feet. See the madness of what happens whenever you stop listening to God and you start doing what's right in your own eyes? How careful people can be in their ungodliness. 
And so there you have Judges 21. Why did this happen? Because people did what was right in their own eyes. And it led to ill-conceived piety, ill-conceived brutality, and ill-conceived hilarity at the end. It's all a mess. Now, how do we apply this? Um, Let me apply it personally to us. And then we'll apply it to the church as we close out our sermon. Personally. What is the rule in your life? In your home? Do you do what is right in your eyes? Or is your soul gripped by the word of God? I've got to be careful. The last time I preached that, a couple of weeks ago now. On Monday, I had a bit of an argument with the wife, Catherine. It was all my fault. Mostly. And I sat upstairs in the restroom afterwards, very cross, determined not to apologize. And then the Holy Spirit spoke to me. I didn't hear a voice, but I might as well have. He said, let's just run through again your sermon from last night. No, we don't want to go there, I said. No, we're going to go there, he said, so I thought, okay. So let's run through your sermon last night. What was the main point of your sermon last night? Not doing what is right in my own eyes. I knew what was coming next. Okay. How is that working for you now, Neil? I'm not going to apologize. I know I was mostly in the wrong, but she was in the wrong a little bit too, and I'm not going to apologize. Neil, what would Jesus do? Or what would Jesus have you do? He wouldn't have got in this mess in the first place. What would Jesus have you do? Apologize. Okay, Neil, what are you going to do? What's right in your own eyes? Or what's right in God's eyes? That's a silly illustration. But that's where this principle touches down. In every area of your life. Every single area. How you discipline your children. How you deal with your husband. How you deal with your wife. How you deal with your colleagues at work. How you interact with unbelievers. What you watch in television, what magazines you watch, what books you watch, how you spend your, your, your spare time. Every area. What's right in God's eyes, what's right in your eyes. And if you learn anything from the book of Judges, if you follow, if you do what is right in your own eyes, if that's the goal of your life, there is no limit to how far you can fall and what a mess you end up into spiritually, morally and socially. It causes chaos. Now, illustrations from a number, number of churches. Think a second of, you know, how these people in Judges 21, how they stopped listening to God, and it led them to ill-conceived piety. I think that happens an awful lot in our day and age. Here's how it works. Piety becomes, which means the kind of life you live when you please God, piety and godliness, and especially love, has been redefined by most of Christendom as being a nice person. And being nice means not offending anyone. That becomes the goal, the drive. And if you are nice and not offensive, then you are a loving person. And if you offend somebody, like Mr. Caffey this week, or last week, then you are a hateful person. When did I disagree with you become I hate you? When did that happen? Can someone tell me when did that happen? But it's this whole notion that kind of stems from those 
you know, liberal, effeminate ministers who've got as much masculinity as a tall, long glass of lukewarm water. And they never draw any lines. And they never point out any sin. And everything is good. And everything is wonderful. And everything is accepted. And everything is affirmed. Illustration. Think of liberalism. I read this this week on the Aquila Report about how liberalism kills churches. An article by Margaret Venter. She says this, Today the United Church of Canada is literally dying. Back in the 1960s, the liberal churches bet their future on becoming more open, more inclusive, more egalitarian, and more progressive. They figured that was the way to reach out to a new generation of worshippers. They did what was right in their own eyes. And it was a colossal flop. Two weeks from now, the United Church of Canada will assemble in Ottawa for its 41st General Councillor, where, council, where it will debate church policy and elect a new moderator. The top item on its agenda, what do you think? Top item on its agenda. Worship of God, preaching of the gospel, the discipline of the church. The top item on its agenda is a resolution calling for a boycott of products from Israeli settlements. Fortunately, nobody cares what the United Church thinks about Israeli settlements, or anything else for that matter, because the United Church doesn't matter anymore. For many years, the United Church was a pillar of Canadian society. Its leaders were respected public figures. It was and remains the biggest Protestant denomination in a country that outside Quebec has been largely shaped by centuries of Protestant tradition. But today, the church is literally dying. The average age of its members is 65. They believe in many things, but they do not necessarily believe in God. Some congregations proudly describe themselves as post-theistic. Which is a good thing, because as one church elder said, it shows the church is not stuck in the past. Besides, who needs God when you've got Israel to kick around? The United Church is not alone. All the secular liberal churches are collapsing. The Episcopalians, the American equivalent of the United Church, have lost a quarter of their membership in the past decade. They're at their lowest point since the 1930s. Not coincidentally, they spent their recent general meeting affirming the right of transgender to become priests. What happened? The church began to be governed and led by what was right in the eyes of men, not what is true in the word of God. It causes great disaster. Or think about the church's response to homosexuality. People will find any reason to justify homosexual marriage. I was debating this week on Facebook with a number of um, probably former friends now from Northern Ireland who used to be in medical school with me and one of them actually argued that homosexual unions were right because monkeys engage in homosexual activity. To which I replied, even if you could prove that monkeys engage in confused transgender intercourse, you surely wouldn't expect that to become an imperative for human beings. Surely we should be held to a higher standard than the beasts. I mean, if we have to follow the beasts, 
What can you condemn? How can you condemn Aurora? The beasts do that kind of thing all the time. Of course, then I became a hater, unkind and ungodly. There's an article, I was going to read, I haven't time to read it to you, but there's an article here by a lady, a girl who was raised in a, a homosexual home. Her father was initially married to her mother, but was a homosexual, left her mother after he had children. Children stayed with him. And she describes the debauchery of the home. It's a Catholic world report in unambiguous terms. The endless stream of lovers coming through the home one week after another. Her father um, going to see her in her her school plays. Not to see her in the play, but to try and groom some of her male friends in the school to become his boyfriend. Unspeakable, just awful debauchery. How she saw her father get AIDS and die. Many of his friends becoming AIDS victims or committing suicide. Awful. Terrible. There are studies released recently that show that um, the outcome for children living in homosexual unions are disaster. Disaster is Mark Regeneres, who is the associate professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Austin. He had this recent study. Even after including controls for age, race, gender and things like being bullied as a youth or the gay friendliness of the state in which they live, such um, children raised in, in gay homes were more apt to report being unemployed, less healthy, more depressed, more likely to have cheated on a spouse or a partner, smoke more pot, had trouble with the law, report more male and female sex partners, more sexual victimization, and were more likely to reflect negatively on their childhood family life, among other things. Now, of course, he's being pilloried left, right, and and center as being unscientific and so forth and so on. Of course, that's what they're going to say. I mean, if the monkeys do it, it's got to be okay for us. And yet, I come across this article also in the Aquila Report entitled Ending Postmodern Sexual Compromise of the Gospel. Are evangelical pastors and churches capitulating to the homosexual agenda? Earlier this month, homosexual activists complained to the Advertising Standards Authority against a billboard by Light of the Nations Church, Pretoria, which said that Jesus could set people free from a list of sins which included homosexuality. Tragically, without even trying to defend the gospel, whenever the homosexuals attacked them for this, the church responded by deleting the word homosexuality from the billboard. On their Facebook page, Pastor Derek Linley said the church's philosophy had not changed, but the deletion had been to show... um, a more non-judgmental spirit towards the gay community. Because of this attitude, they said, we have gay members in our church, and because our members already know our unchanged philosophy in this, rather have homosexual people in a church with a good attitude than heterosexual people with a bad attitude. That's their motto. And this is not an isolated incident. Bigger names, Tim Keller, in our own congregation, our own denomination, Reform scholar, megachurch pastor, one of the founder leaders of the Gospel Coalition, when asked whether homosexuality is a sin and whether homosexuals are going to hell, he replied, it's very misleading to say homosexuality is a sin. But that's not what sends you to heaven or hell. We would say homosexuality is not the original design for sexuality. Therefore, it's not good for human flourishing. The homosexual interviewer cited the Bible 
But Keller, under pressure of, of the interview, buckled and fudged the issue. In April this year, Andy Stanley, senior pastor of North Point Megachurch in Atlanta, the son of, what do you call him? Charles Stanley, thank you. Um, cited an example about grace in his own church. A man in his church left his wife for a homosexual relationship. And the man and his new partner wanted to serve as volunteers in the church. Stanley said, hold on. You've got to divorce your wife first. The story ends with the homosexual couple, the first man's ex-wife and their child, as well as her new boyfriend and his child from another relationship, all coming together to worship at the Christmas service. Then the article cites what he calls the path of compromise. The use of homosexual language, which carry their assumptions, for example, using the word gay instead of homosexual, using the word orientation rather than sin. Accepting the assumption that homosexuals are a discriminated group needing protection, so-called gay rights. Apologizing to the homosexual community for the hurt caused by churches' unloving attitude, creating a false guilt. Accepting homosexuality as an identity or sexual orientation rather than a sin. Failing to distinguish between a temptation someone struggles with but fights and something people just give, live, live with like a disability. Talking about gay Christians and gay churches as if there was such a thing. And a whole list of other ones. I commend it to you uh, later on. Now, here's the issue. As I told my, my friends online this week, there are no clean sins. My sins as a pastor are especially offensive to God. Because I know so much and often live so poorly. But homosexuality, giving in to the urge of homosexuality, just like giving in to the urge to fornicate or to commit adultery, is a sin. And there are some urges that should be resisted, not indulged. But when a church ceases to be driven by this book and starts doing what is right in its own eyes, it starts to fudge all these issues. And when you start to fudge the issues of truth, at the very best, you're left with a whole truth told as a half-truth, which is a whole untruth. And there's no limit to the degree to which you will fall into spiritual, moral, and social chaos. Now, are homosexuals welcome in this church? Yes, they are. But they can't come into membership unless they repent. And if homosexuals come to this church practicing homosexuals, we will have a loving conversation with them. Just like I have a loving conversation with a mass murderer, a rapist, a child abuser, a man addicted to pornography, a kleptomaniac who can't stop stealing things, a wife beater. Jesus welcomes sinners who come to him for repentance. He comes to set us free from sin, not to set us free to sin. And we cannot affirm, much less encourage, what God forbids. Lest we make ourselves the friend of sinners and the enemy of God. As James said to the church in his day, adulterers and adulteresses, spiritually speaking, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He who seeks to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
And so what do we do with this mess? How do we fix this mess? The book of Judges says there's only one station of king, or station of person, sorry, who can fix it. And that's a king. And through the rest of the Old Testament, as we meet the kings, first Saul, he's tall but not very good, and David, almost perfect, but fundamentally flawed. And then the downward spiral all through the rest of the kings from Solomon on down. We're left wondering, is this the best kings can be? Is this the best kings can do? Until we meet the little child born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah and the family line of David destined to be great David's greater son. This one was born be the king, not just of the Jews, but of the whole world. And he alone can fix the mess in the church and fix the mess in my heart and fix the mess in all of our homes and fix the mess in America. And the first step we take toward Jesus fixing this mess is listening. Don't think for yourself that's above your pay grade. Listen to the king. To whom else can we go? He alone has the words of everlasting life. Let's pray together.